0: Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I have a really special guest. Dr. Yvette Saavedra is an assistant professor at the University of Oregon in the Department of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. Specializing in 19th century U.S. history, borderlands history, the History of the U.S. West, Chicana and Chicano History, and Gender and Sexuality History, vet graduated from Pittsburgh College in Claremont and received both her master's degree and her Ph.D. in history from the University of Texas, El Paso. In addition to publishing pieces on topics such as Chicano, Chicana History, LGBTQ History, and Borderlands History, she published her first book, Passing Before the Roses, race, identity, and land use in Southern California from 1771 to 1890 in 2018. Pasadena before the Roses is an important exploration into Pasadena's early history. In it, she creates a vibrant picture of three defining periods in our city, the Mission Period, the Rancho Period, and the American Homestead. During this roughly 120-year period, the area that would eventually birth Pasadena was a place where competing visions of identity displaced one another. In one way, we are a city of many histories, and each of these helped define how we view ourselves and interactions with each other. That is why it is critically important to learn, absorb, and respect what has come before us so that we can be educated and empowered for what comes next. Yvette was born in Huntington Park and was the first member of her working-class family to go to college. As you will hear in our conversation, her time at Pitzer was critical, as it was her first real introduction to history as a profession, and as important from a professor that looked like her. This is a great reminder that often who teaches us is as important as what we are taught. She is currently working on her second book, Living la Mala Vida, Progressive Feminism, Morality, and Nationalism in Mexican California, from 1800 to 1870. In addition to having lived in Pasadena and having our city serve as the inspiration for her PhD dissertation and her book, Yvette was a featured author in 2018 at Vromans and was a discussion panelist at a Caltech event entitled From Farm to Family, Agriculture, Race, and the Origins of Eugenics in Southern California, that took place in November 2020. Before the show, Yvette and I spoke about the passing of Tongva elder Julia Bogany, who died the week we recorded. We both had brief encounters with Julia and are better people for it. Julia was my second guest on the show, and I can't be more grateful to her for our conversation. In that spirit, Yvette and I dedicate this show to Julia. So, without further delay, my conversation with Dr. Yvette Saavedra. Yvette, thank you very much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, I thought that before we jump into a discussion of your excellent book, uh, Pasadena Before the Roses, I wanted to share kind of how I came across your work, which was when I started the show in the fall, I wanted to do some early research on Pasadena. And there are so few resources on the period that you cover. There's a lot of information and a lot of history written after 1900, but there's a really large gap between. The time that you cover, which is 1770s to the 1890s, that's until you wrote your book and I kind of came across it and it provided an incredible amount of information on this early period of Pasadena. And so that's kind of how I found you and and the book. So while I know you didn't grow up in Pasadena, you are from Southern California and you went to Pitzer for your undergraduate degree. So to kind of get us started, can you share a little bit more about your personal story and have you always been interested in history?
1: So I was born in Huntington Park, California, and um, to working class family, and I'm the eldest of two children. And I pretty much grew up in, in the LA area uh, during the 1980s. And so my interest in history you know, I got to tell you, when I first started college, I was pre-med because I wanted to be a surgeon. <laughs> and then, you know, it was one of those situations where you love science, but at the same time, you don't have a passion for it. And I figured, you know, being wanting to be a surgeon, you kind of have to have a passion for that. And so history, I guess I didn't know I wanted to be a historian because I didn't know you could be a historian, right? I, I just, you know, we would play school and I would teach my sister history or what I thought was history right at that point. And so as I got older, like I, I, I discovered like this passion for the past. And so, um, you know, and this is something that I instill in my parents. Like my parents really instilled the love that I have for education and for knowledge. And so they always really, they always encouraged me to, to read and to keep learning. And so I came across, you know, history as a possibility when I was in high school. And I'm like, okay, I took an AP history class. Um, I had a teacher there that was, uh, his name was uh, Mr. Blaine Franklin, who's now deceased. Um, but I know he's watching from somewhere, right? And he just had this incredible passion for history. He passed that on to me. And so when I went to college, I thought, well, you know, I like history, but I'm going to see about science. And so I did the pre-med thing for a little bit. And then I realized I didn't have that passion. And so I changed my major to history, you know, sitting in a classroom in my, my very first Chicana history class uh, as a junior at Pitzer College. I saw, I saw Dr. Dina Gonzalez, one of the very first Chicana PhDs in history and seeing her at the front of the classroom and in many ways being mirrored back, you know, like being from being a person of color, being a Chicana, being a lesbian, seeing her in that classroom, I'm like, wow, like, that's what I want to do. And so that's really where I came up with the idea of becoming a historian. So it, so I guess the answer is yes, it was always kind of there. But it was something that was very much fostered throughout my childhood and adolescence in early
0: years of college. You mentioned your parents, your AP history teacher and when your professor's in college, are there any other influences, either personal or academic, that really encouraged you to pursue history?
1: You know, personally, it would it would be my parents. They really encouraged me to go to college. Um, they, they weren't stifling in the sense of like, oh, you have to study this or you have to do that. It was pretty much... You know do do what you want to do and 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 just have a passion for it and being the first person in my family to go to college um, there was a lot of responsibility tied to that and I wanted to make sure I I could do the best that I could at, at what I chose at what my chosen profession was and and so I don't know you know if I go back and ask my parents did you ever think I was gonna be a professor or if you, even if you ask any of my of my friends you know growing up did you know were you gonna you know could you ever see me as a professor I don't think they would say yes <laughs> right, for a variety of reasons. But at the same time, I I think that there was that level of encouragement that's necessary. And, you know, I was just thinking and preparing for a conversation today. I was I was thinking back about the fact that um, my mom used to refer to me in Spanish. uh, That was the first language. She used to refer to me as librito and librito means little book. Right. And so the reason that she had that nickname for me was because I, I always I always had a book I always wanted books I was always reading you know and so I think that, that that's the foundation for it professionally you know once I decided once I saw Dina Gonzalez in class and and I realized this is the my chosen profession I just started reading the works of other chicana historians and and chicano historians and latinx historians and and I was like you know this is this is the kind of thing that I want to do I want to write Histories that can have the same kind of impact that these scholars have had on me, and so I, I think that that professionally, that's what kind of did it for me. You know, like like seeing that I could actually be a producer of knowledge and contribute to all of these wonderful conversations to a history that at that point when I was coming up, I think it's changed a little bit now, but to that point where I was when I was coming up, a history that really wasn't told very often, right? Like I didn't really see Chicano or Mexican-American history in the history books until I got to college. And I thought that potentially I could make a difference and produce that history and put it out there in the world. And so I I credit that to all of the, to the generations of Chicano uh, Chicano and Chicana historians that came before me.
0: Let's shift a little bit and talk about Uh, your book, Pasadena Before the Roses. So what drew you to this topic originally? And why did you choose Pasadena over different communities in the San Gabriel Valley or just in Southern California?
1: That's a really good question. And there's, you know, going over it, I think there's a, there's a lot of reasons I chose Pasadena, but I I think the, I guess I could tell you the more personal uh, and, you know, then I'll, then I'll speak about the more professional elements of it. At the time that I began this project, I was living in Pasadena. Uh, I had come back from graduate school and moved to Pasadena. Pasadena was the place that I used to go to when I was in high school. Like on Fridays and Saturdays, we would go hang out on Colorado Boulevard at Penny Lane. I'm dating myself here, right? It was a a vinyl store and a a music store, right? And so
0: We're about the same age, so I did the same thing. So I can certainly uh, relate to that.
1: All right. So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So so Pasadena, it was something that always drew me. It was a place that always drew me. So when when I moved back from Texas uh, after finishing my PhD work, or I should say my coursework before I started dissertating, I lived in Pasadena. And out of all of the places that I had ever lived, Pasadena was the best place that I, the you know, it's the place that called me the most. And so I absolutely love Pasadena. I would, and the reason I, I chose this Topic or what brought me to the topic of Pasadena as I started my dissertation work and then ultimately culminated in the in the book. Um, I would spend a lot of time in Old Town Pasadena, and one of my favorite restaurants was a place called Barney's. Um, it's not the it's not the Barney's that's there now. So it's, it's another location that's no longer there. And in the 19th century, that location had been used as a livery stable, and so there's a lot of history in the building itself, right? And you know, one of the nights that I was at Barney's, I I, you know, I was looking at the photographs or the pictures that they had that were up about you know Pasadena's history or Pasadena's early days or the pioneers of Pasadena and one of the things that stood out to me from these photographs was the absence of indigenous histories and mexican histories of this particular region and so it got me thinking about historical erasure and the role that historical erasure plays in contemporary ideas about people, ultimately, what I mean is that you know in looking at these photographs, there's only one story that's told, right? It's the story of of pioneer, of Pasadena's pioneer past. and and so what that means is that so the history of Pasadena starts with the Indiana colony, right that's that's the the, the narrative that I was seeing from these pictures and I thought well that's not right you know and I mean that I mean it's not correct right it's not, it's not a correct assessment of the development or or establishment of this place because we know that the region itself wasn't it you know was and remains indigenous land right indigenous people it belonged to indigenous populations it belonged to the Tongva in, in the in the sense of that era and so and we know through these multiple moments of col- of colonization um that the land changes Hands and so the history of Pasadena goes way before the history of the pioneers and way before the history of the Tournament of Roses parade and and this is why the book ultimately is called Pasadena Before the Roses because most of Pasadena's history is known from the from the roses from the Tournament of Roses onward um, and he, and it erases those previous populations that live there and so. I guess the the whole purpose behind the text was to address that history, the histories that came before, and, and show that not just this history, but all history is a history of of multiple narrations and multiple experiences. And so that's what brought me to studying this particular region: the the love of the place, first off, and of course the, the responsibility that I think we have to to provide spaces for these multiple histories to be told.
0: Did you have a kind of a clear thesis or a series of questions that you wanted to answer when you started writing the book?
1: I wish. No, no, I didn't. (laughs) I didn't. I didn't say I can't say that I had a clear thesis when I first began the project. I did have a I guess we could say a working thesis because, you know, again, it was it was a project about historical uh, historical recuperation. Right. Um, And addressing historical erasure. Um, But to say that I had a solid argument, not so much. That's something that that's something that came about as as I did the research. So what I did know for sure, as I started the project, was that this was a project of of historical recuperation. And I was trying to find the people that were not included in those pictures. So trained as a Borderlands historian, I, you know, I started looking at the sources from a perspective that sought to examine the development of the place and people's identities in that place over the course of time. And so I was trying to think about how people and places were influenced or are influenced by the ideologies produced through these larger processes of conquest, colonization, empire building, nation building, right? All of these different elements. And so while I didn't have a a set thesis, I I guess you could say what kind of put all the work together or what tied it together from the beginning was an interrogation of power, an examination of how power functions in, in a given place.
0: So your book breaks down the period that you cover, 1771 to, to 1890, into three distinct kind of periods that we think about, the Mission Period, the Rancho Period, and then the American Homestead Period. How do you think each of these periods kind of shaped what Pasadena has become?
1: I think that's an interesting question. Uh, and I think in many ways, I, I think that's one of the larger questions that I asked at the beginning of the project, right? Um, because you know sitting sitting there at on the at the you know eating at the at Barney's on the sidewalk, you know the kind of sidewalk uh lunching that that we we love in Southern California, I would take in that space and think about okay well how how did this place get to be what it was or what it is right and so breaking it down into these three different periods allowed me to think about what each moment tells us. Right so during each period the land tells us the stories of the people who inhabited it and built it in their respective moments and i think what fuels this was this idea that people leave indelible marks on the land even though they're not readily identifiable at each moment what happens is that they're still present and ultimately they're shaped and reshaped to the specific goals and ideas of optimal land use that exist in any given moment, right? And and so, because each group during each of these eras that I break book into or the history of the region into, um, because each group define their use as optimal, right? The the most, the best, the premier way to use the land. They do so because each of their perspectives is rooted in social, cultural, economic and political dynamics that are shaped by their own individual worldviews and values. And so the meaning of land and its uses is something that continuously changes. And so this is what I point to in the book as competing visions, right? Essentially, the ways in which each group ha- like approaches land, treats land, and by extension defines its social and cultural hierarchies around this particular land use, what it does is is essentially it tells us about their own relationship with, with power and that space in particular. So whether we're looking at the missionaries, the, the aspiring landed elite or the expiring, aspiring landed class, you know, the, the rancheros ultimately in the California period or the, the Euro-American early agriculturalists that that established the Indiana colony and then ultimately transitioned into Pasadena itself, each of these groups leaves a mark on what this land is. And that, that mark could either be material and legible on the land itself or through the way that we think about that space. And so I think the way that we envision Pasadena now privileges just one historical moment. And by breaking it into these three periods, it's, I'm not doing it because they say, you know, one period ends and then the next begins, but rather to think about how history is a collection of layers, right? How the history of Pasadena is a, a collection of layers of histories and narratives, all of which have built on, literally, <laughs> literally have been built upon Right. And so I think that's that's ultimately what contributes to how Pasadena would become the Pasadena that it is now. You know, for example, the fact that the Tournament of Roses parade is televised around the world tells us that this place has a story to tell us or multiple stories to tell us, I should say, that are rooted in, you know, the period of the of the 1700s. Right, like it, it, it's like it's a continuous story. It doesn't, it doesn't end, and so the fact that we're televising this around the world allows us an opportunity to see the interconnectedness of time and space.
0: That makes perfect sense, and I love the analogy of layering. That you're not looking at history from a start and stop standpoint. It's a lot more fluid than that, and the the layers kind of blend together. And this blending just evolves over time, builds, like you said, physically and otherwise over time to to develop into what we have now. We had shared some notes in preparation of this conversation. And I had remarked that I thought that these three periods that we talked about were defined by great culture clashes, you know, the gabrielino tongva and the Spanish, the Spanish and the Mexican, uh, and then the Mexican and the white settlers. And... However, you had a really interesting take on it and my observation, I mean, you contend that these interactions were not entirely contentious and you referred to this as dynamic continuities, which is a term I was unfamiliar with. And so I was wondering if you could describe what dynamic continuities is further and then how it applies to the people and the cultures of the area.
1: Well, the concept of dynamic continuities is is one of the analytical frameworks that I use in organizing the book. And I want to start by saying that in in looking at dynamic continuities, it's not that I'm trying to sanitize or erase the contentiousness that exists within the establishment of what eventually becomes Pasadena, right? The multiple establishments or manifestations of what ultimately becomes Pasadena, because of course, that wouldn't be an accurate assessment of the history, right? Conflict was most definitely integral, an integral part of the colonization of, of this of this region. And we know that through the violence that was engendered against indigenous populations, the dispossession of, of indigenous lands, the dispossession of land that takes place not only by the Spanish, but by ultimately the Californios and then, you know, Euro-Americans. Um. So uh, the culture clashes and the I guess the the conflict that you that you describe James is most definitely an accurate assessment. It, it did happen and and it's not that I'm trying to downplay that or erase that. But in my book I do use the term uh, dynamic continuities as a framework to look at the relationship of power between groups in a slightly different way. And so let me explain what i mean by that. so i'm not getting rid of the conflicts that that is there or the conflict that is present. and we see that with my use of competing visions. so the moment you have that those those competing visions, we know that there's going to be competitiveness and contention. but in looking at the relationship of these different groups over time, one of the things that i that i noticed was that there were complementary power dynamics that exist within each of these particular moments. And so I use the term dynamic continuity as a framework for understanding how groups empower, mainly those that had control of the land, whether we're looking at missionaries, rancheros, or American farmers, right? During each moment of conquest and colonization, I look at how each of them used similar ideologies to try to maintain their control of the region. So for example, One of the things I do in the book is complicate the relationship between Mexican and Euro-American landed classes, specifically to show how the landed classes try to create these networks that would help them maintain control over land. And although these networks are ultimately going to break down as a result of of the entrenchment of white supremacy after the increase of American migration into Southern California after the U.S.-Mexico War, There was a moment where you do have a kind of cooperation that exists between Californios and Euro-Americans. And we see this in several ways, right? Like in the Mexican period, we see it through the, I guess you could say the integration or assimilation of of Euro-Americans into Mexican or Californio culture, Right here, I'm talking about you know Amer- Euro American men who came into the region who wanted to become landowners, and because they were in the minority, they marry into or attempt to they, they convert to Catholicism and marry into Californian families as a way of accessing land. Right, and so that's a dynamic continuity. Interesting, right? Like that. That's that's a way that they're attempting to assert to access power. When we start to see. A transition, right? When we start to see the transition, and ultimately the end of the U.S.-Mexico War and the and the loss of land uh, by Mexico to the United States, we the dynamic continuity there is that there's this attempt by Californios to try to at least for a, a, a short period try to stay at the top of the social hierarchy and and economic hierarchy by using the land and intermarriages and, you know, other, other cultural means, if you will, I guess to say, to, to, to stay in control of what they, what they had. So I guess one of the contributions then that I make with this work is that I don't only look at it from the point of contention. I don't only look at it as, you know, for example, Mexican versus Euro-American. I look at it to see, well, How do the landless classes try to find similarities with each other as a means of maintaining authority over the people who will be the laborers and control of territory that both of these groups say is theirs, but in reality belongs to indigenous people, right? Um, And and I guess that's where dynamic continuities comes from. It's like, well, let's not only look at it from the point of contentiousness, let's look at the similarities that exist and so yeah, I guess in a sense it's a it's a type of class-based uni- unity that they're trying to engender um, but at the same time what what causes those to bre- that to break down is the imposition of white supremacy and ideologies of manifest destiny under the euro American system. But of course, when we look at the California system before the us mexico war. They were using racial and ethnic ideologies to create differentiation between themselves, the landed class, and the landless classes, right? And so again, it's like one of those dynamic continuities would be, how do we use ideas of race or ethnicity to create a hierarchy? That's a commonality. That's a continuity that we see, that we see through these two periods. So that's, that's what I mean by dynamic continuities,
0: no, that's a great explanation. So thank you for that. When you look at these interactions between the different groups, are there any lessons that kind of help us view diversity and tolerance?
1: I think that's a difficult question.
0: <laughs> I think. I know it is. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it, it's difficult because I, you know, I think part of it has to do with the, the specific moment that we're at now, right? Like I, you know, and I, and I mean that in the sense of like, what can history teach us? about how not to repeat or replicate systems of oppression, right? And so, yeah, I think these interactions help us to think more critically about power, right? how it exists, how it's produced, how it breaks down, how it manifests during different moments. And so... I think one of the main lessons that we get is that it shows, you know, what I'm hoping my work does is that it shows us how these forms of power continuously manifest over time and how each group that places itself at the top of its own socio-cultural hierarchy will continue to replicate oppression by using similar ways of thinking. So, for example, one of the elements that I look at in the book is this idea of the continuity of power right? How the continuity of power results in the continued imposition of racial ideologies that result in exploitation and dispossession of indigenous peoples. So part of like, and it's kind of blends in with that question you asked about dynamic continuity. Part of it is, you know, I I think one of the lessons is how can we look at how we continue to replicate systems of oppression that have been used for hundreds of years, Right. And so, how, how can we take these, not only look at them and, and examine them, but see what it is that produces them so that then we can try to eradicate them? I think that's the lesson. I, I don't know. I don't know if, if I can walk away from the book and say, like, oh, I hope this book shows us that we can all get along because I don't, I don't think that that's what the work was about. Right. It was more about how can we be critical about the consequences of not telling these histories. You know, one of the things James App, I guess as far as looking at this work as a as a historical recuperation, one of the motivating factors behind it and you can see this in the I talk about that it's in the conclusion of the book, but the fact that in 2010 the Tournament of Roses Parade had um it was there was a float that was there to celebrate the Mexican independence the anniversary of Mexican Independence, and so, you know, they had the Angel de, de Independencia, or the Angel of Independence, at the front of the float, and had all these other important cultural symbols on the float. And the response to it was so hateful. You know, there were a lot of groups, um, anti-immigrant groups, you know, were came out and spoke about how I think one of them said something like, you know, this is how. This is how they mark their invasion, right? This is how they mark their invasion of, of of our land, right? And and so it got me to think about, like, well, wow, like you know, there's several reasons why that kind of response would happen, and you know, anti-immigrant sentiment, nativism, a variety of other of other um, sentiments that are very much based on this idea of xenophobia and, and white supremacy um, or white supremacist ideology. Um, but the other element, I think is well how can we even consider Mexicans as immigrants right yeah some Mexicans are immigrants but the fact that this was mexican and indigenous land in itself right is is kind of <laughs> it points us to well this response can happen because these stories aren't told and people might not know right that that pasadena was a territory or a land that was not always euro american Right. And so I think, you know, the lesson that comes out of this then, aside from exab- establishing or being critical about power and its manifestations, is to think how can history get us to think about what came before us and whoever us is. Right. And and so to to, to step outside of what we know and what our history is. And again, we and us and our, I mean those in the sense of each group. Whomever they are, to think outside of themselves and be conscious of other histories. I think that's the lesson that we get from here.
0: It's a very important lesson. And I think you expressed that very eloquently. You know, one of the most powerful aspects of history, I think, is its ability to connect uh, people that have come before us long before us and to understand what their lives were like. And so I think your book does a great job of paying a fuller picture of what the culture was like during that period. And you know, you talk about the clothing of the people, you talk about kind of fiestas. This is ex- incredibly challenging for a period that there are no photographs for some of it. There are, there are illustrations for some of it and pictures of the later ha- later part of it. But how do you kind of go about crafting a narrative for us to really see a fuller picture of these people and what their lives were like?
1: To kind of find a connection with them, you mean? Exactly. One of the ways that I and, you know, this isn't just for this book, but just in general, one of the things that I that I love about being a historian, right, and, and how and it's how I approach my research, it's how I approach my teaching, largely because, you know, as a 19th century historian, I am dealing with people who, who are no longer with us, right? It's different from a researcher who can say, hey, how do you feel about this, right? It's a quite a big responsibility because you don't want to speak for them. Right. You don't want to speak for them and you don't want to say this is how they were right. And, and, and misrepresent them. But one, I guess the way that I try to make a connection between the present and the past and how I am, how you can see this working in my, in my narrative is that I set out to one of the ways I set out to do this is to try to present people in ways that speak to the, the similarities that they have or that they share with people in the present. So for example, the historical narratives that I present address elements that are still relevant in the contemporary, such as community practices and the actual building of community. The ideas that influence our everyday lives, the material reality and the emotions that cause people to act in certain ways, right? These are all things that, that even though we're separated by time, there are still commonalities that bond us together, bind us together as people. Right. You know, however, what what's different here is the way we live these experiences and these material realities and emotions are are, are, are tied to these larger social processes. Right. So we can identify with someone from the 19th century and say, hey, they had fiestas. They had, they, you know, they had community gatherings. They built their communities for reasons of, of security and, and, and support, right? We can say we build communities for the same thing, right? We have fiestas to celebrate things and commemorate things, right? Um, we're worried about food. We're worried about where we're going to live. You know, one of the things I, I think one of the things I remember the most about writing the chapter on culture was describing the bedding utensils and the dishes that people used, And I remember thinking to myself, wow, like people were worried about mattresses, right? Not the way that we think of mattresses today, but like figuring out how, what they're going to sleep on or how they're going, going to consume the food that they have, right? And so these are things that, that tie us together regardless of time, right? And so again, you know, the, the, the thing is though, and I think this is where the element of, of doing history comes in, is that we have a responsibility to show, as, as historians, I have a responsibility to show the way that people's lives and experiences with these material realities and emotions, how they're tied to these larger societal processes. For example, land was a common desire among all the groups in the book. However, the meaning of it, the motivations for, and the means of obtaining it were different for everyone that was involved. For some, land meant the attainment of status and wealth. For others, it meant genocide, exploitation, and displacement, right? There are, These are the complexities of history that best replicate our contemporary dynamics. This is what gets us to begin to be able to see and understand these folks, right? The fact that that the that the societies that we live in the moment that we live in are what give meaning to the things that are around us. And so while for some it's, you know, the secularization act of 1833 allowed them to access lands that they hadn't been able. And here I'm talking about the Californios, right? They were able to access lands that they were going to use for, to create their status and their wealth. What that meant for the indigenous populations of that territory or of that land was displacement, genocide, and exploitation, right? The same, you know, similar idea when we look at the um, the Euro-American period, right? And and even, you know, I think one of the interesting elements here of the work is that I don't only look at how Euro-American agriculturalists displace Mexican, Californios, and indigenous peoples. I also look at how Euro-American capitalists displace Euro-American Agriculturalists, right? At the in the latter part of the book, I look at how eventually tourism displaces agriculture in Pasadena, right? And so again, you know, I I bring these examples just to show the concerns that people have in their daily lives are not that different from what we have in our contemporary, but the way that they experience it as today, right, is largely based on larger societal factors that define our relationship to whatever it is that we're, that we're looking at to whatever that emotion is, to whatever that desire is. Right. I, I, I think, and that's something that I try to bring forth in the narrative, that human connection, I guess.
0: Land identity is a big part of your book. And I know you just, you just mentioned that. Do you think our, our current views of real estate have changed significantly or are they still a reflection of these past experiences?
1: Mm, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I think, um, yes, I think, I think so. One of the similarities that we can point to from what I'm looking at in the, in the 19th, well, 18th and 19th century to the present time is that people, we see that people continue to see land as an opportunity Right. That, and I think that in many ways, that's in the contemporary, that's what it is. We see it as opportunity. Now, I think what differs. And again, you know, going back to my previous point that it depends on, on what the what the societal worldview is at that moment. Right. Um, that's the, the societal worldview is what's going to determine the importance or the meaning of that land. So in a sense, what, I, what I'm trying to get at is that oh, th- that meaning of opportunity is something that is very subjective. That's what I'm trying to get at. And if people see land as opportunity, whether that's individual opportunity or financial opportunity, right, that's influenced by the specific context in which we live. So I think that ideas about identity and destiny and land still go hand in hand with land ownership and control over land. These ideas are the legacy of colonialism, And while the justification, such as the ideas of optimal land use, are maybe fueled by different things, such as religion, race, empire, nation building, capitalism, westward expansion, agriculture, tourism, ranching, right, Many uh, and uh, many other motivations, what is at the core of these is an idea and belief that they, whomever that group is, at any given moment, can use the land in the best way and thrive. So I think one of the things to take away from this is how subjective these ideas are. You know, in other words, in the contemporary, we can look at land and say, that's valuable. But why it's valuable is something that we set and define in our moment. And it's it's infused with, Ideas of capitalism, ideas of race, ideas—you know—all of these things that come out of colonialism. And so, yeah, I, I think our current viewpoints of identity and and land and destiny—they're all they're all tied together, and they they have been. Again, you know, going back to colonialism, if we look at it at the cause of the of the uh, what is it, the American Revolution, right? If we look at the movement northward by the Spanish as they conquered Mesoamerica, right? It was all about, it's our destiny to take this land for our purpose, whatever that purpose is. And so, yeah, I think it's still, it's still very much a part of, of the contemporary period.
0: So I thought that with the time that we have left, because I I know that we're, we're getting toward close to an hour, is that maybe we can talk about some of the, your current projects and, At the University of Oregon, you teach classes on women's history, gender and sexuality studies and the U.S.-Mexico borderlands and Chicana feminism. And as someone who identifies as Chicana and Latina, what do you think your own personal identity and journey bring to your teaching and researching of these areas?
1: I think that my identity as a Chicana, as a a lesbian, working class, first generation, Or from a working class class family, all of these things influence my teaching and research because it influences the passion that I have for the work that I do. In the classroom, I know the feeling of what of what it's like to be a minority learning history that I couldn't identify with, and that means you know Chicano or Mexican American history, as well as LGBT history, right? And, And in my case, you know, I'll be very specific and say lesbian history or queer history, and I know the feeling of learning history that directly touches me of seeing a professor who mirrors back my identity right so i know both of those feelings and this is linked to my research right like this this feeling and, and how my identity connects to it is linked to my research because what i'm what i tr- what i strive to do is produce research that will help expand what we know and who is seen in history and i think overall though my teaching and research is about making history accessible and so my identities, and my experiences, and and by experiences I mean my own personal experiences, but also my experiences with with history itself and and learning. I think ultimately what what I seek to do, and how my identity is infused in what I do, is to show. Those that are coming up, you know, other Chicanas, other or Chicanx peoples, Latinx peoples, or, my, or people from minority populations, that there are histories out there that speak to them. Let me, let me also say that you don't have to be able to identify with the history directly, but rather to be able to understand and empathize with the experiences of the populations is important. And so, again, in trying to make history accessible, what I'm trying to do is put it out there so that people can read it and put the information in the classroom so that students can take it in, right? Um, And what they choose to do with it, that's another story, right? That's another story. Um, But ultimately, what what I'm saying is, like, most definitely my experiences as a woman of color, as a queer woman, first gen, have everything to do with what I do in the classroom. And I don't think I could do what I do if I didn't have those experiences from, you know, speaking from my own positionality.
0: And I had an anecdote in my notes, which is I took a history class in college with a very old professor. Nothing against old professors. Uh, cause we're all going to get there. Right. <laughs> but it was a, it was a situation where there was no connection with the professor. I didn't really understand where he was coming from. I didn't really know who he was. And so the, the class felt very empty, right? You're reading all these sources and you're hearing these lectures, but there wasn't really any way for me to feel like I was in, involved in, in the history that was being presented to me. And I think because of that, your words really resonate in terms of how you present both yourself and your viewpoints, but then also allow your your students to take the information that you present and talk about and, and do it th- what they will. The method that you use, I think, is really telling on your kind of your, like you said, your passion for the subject, and I think that really comes through even just during the during this conversation. You know, I, I think that being in class with you is probably you know an incredible experience. <laughs> Thank you. So you're currently working on um, a second book that studies the definitions of masculinity, femininity, gender, and sexuality in the Mexican California, which between 1810 and 1850. And this kind of period kind of overlaps somewhat with Pasadena before the roses. So can you tell me a little bit more about this project? And then what is it about the 19th century that really drew you back to this period? And why is it so interesting to you? This,
1: this project, currently, it's uh, tentatively titled Living La Mala Vida, which translates into living the bad life, and it sets out to examine femininity took shape within early 19th century Mexican Los Angeles. And it's it's uh, while doing the research for the first book, um, I reviewed the Padrones or census, Mexican census of Los Angeles during the 1830s or from the 1830s. And um, similar to other places, right? One of the things that we see within the Spanish and then later in the Mexican period is that in some instances, women who had, had transgressed sociocultural gender norms um, and ideas of propriety. They were designated with have, with the letters MV, which stands for Malavida or bad life. And that was a way of like indicating that, you know, and that was listed under occupation. And it's like, okay, so you live a bad life, right? And that meant a variety of things, right? It, uh, a lot of times, um, people will say it, it's because they engaged in sex work, or in other instances, it's because they had, you know, had had a extramarital affair, or they had children out of wedlock, you know, a variety of different social transgressions that they could have done, uh, socially defined transgressions, I should say. And so this is what start this is where the title comes from first off but one of the things that i wanted to do with this or what i aim to do with this work cuz it's a work in pro- progress is to begin studying the creation of the paradigm of the good woman and bad woman, right? Trying to answer the questions of why is it that some of these women were labeled as bad women? And what does this mean for their position within California society and culture? I want to see the role that women, good wi- you know, quote unquote good women and bad women, end quote, what their role is in determining their place in society. And part of this is to examine the how these categories of good woman, bad women, how they're racialized, how they're classed and how they're gendered, right? Like how do they fit with larger societal ideas of of what a woman is supposed to be like? And so one of the main things that I'm looking at at the moment is this idea of motherhood. If motherhood was a central component of what it meant to be a woman in early 19th century Mexican California, a lot of these women that were considered quote unquote bad women were mothers, Right. And so what, what I'm thinking is, well, if motherhood is so central to it, then how do we, how can we argue that a woman is a bad woman and transgressing ideas of femininity? Right. And so I just want to complicate that more. Right. I, I, I just, um, I want to look at, again, how does the the society, how do societal, societal definitions of good and bad influence how people are perceived and why I'm interested in this period It's because it's a moment of multiple transitions and disruptions. It's an era in which ideologies and practices are shifting where people are involved in world making. Like they're literally making their world after Mexican independence. And I want to get to the core of what that means and the dynamics that influence people's lives. If I had to say it's not, it most definitely is not Pasadena Before the Roses Part 2. It's not that. Um, But it definitely um, expands on the component of the book of the first book that has to do with masculinity. And so that's what I'm looking at in the second, in the second work.
0: That's really interesting. I look forward to reading it, you know, once it's completed.
1: (laughs) Thank you. I'll let you know.
0: No, no, no pressure though.
1: (laughs) Of course not.
0: (laughs) Going kind of moving into our kind of closing questions, you know, you're a relatively young professor and I say that because we're about the same age. So I have to prefer myself as young as well. <laughs> You've already made some, uh, some really interesting and outstanding contributions to your field. When you look back at your experience, what advice would you give to young students or even your students that are interested in pursuing history?
1: First off, I say good choice. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the, one of the main things that I would say is nurture your curiosity about the past. Look for histories that speak to you and that help you understand the dynamics that fuel the world in the past as well as the present. And I think in all of the years that I've taught, in all of the students that I've I've had, I think, and this is something that comes from my own, one of my own graduate school professors, is to read against the grain. Sometimes the stories that we're looking for lie in between what's written. And if we're not creative in the sense of how we look at things, then we might actually miss something that is really, really important. And so I think nurturing our curiosity and being open to seeing things differently than we're taught allows for the space to to really get to at histories that may not always get told.
0: Is there anything that you know now that you wish you would have known when you were starting out?
1: (laughs) That is a... That's a tough one. <laughs> and, and
0: It is a very tough question. I, I t- completely recognize that.
1: <laughs> it is a, it's a totally diffi- difficult question because I, you know, you know, part of what makes it a, a hard question, James, is the fact that I truly believe that who we are now, our present selves, are the culmination of all of the obstacles and struggles that we've endured and risen above. So I don't know if I would want to know any of these things that, you know, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would want to tell myself anything because that might actually change how things turned out. And I'm actually really happy with the way that my, that my you know, career tra- trajectory has turned out. I guess the only lesson I would try to to tell myself or try, you know, to pass on to my, to my younger self when I was starting out was that the road's going to be really difficult and there's going to be times that you want to just quit. But the stories have to be told. And, you know, there's so many voices of history out there that, that, that are marginalized that if you don't get through those tough times and you don't take, you know, those rough patches, if you don't go through them, what's going to happen is that those stories will remain untold. You won't be able to create that space. And so I think that's what I would tell myself that, yeah, it's going to be difficult. You're going to want to quit, but just keep going because there is an end at the, you know, there is a light at the end of that tunnel. And so I think, I think that's, that's, the, that's the wise lesson that I, that I would share with a younger, naive self.
0: <laughs> so as a professor who has studied some really critical events and people in our history, do you think there's a case to be optimistic about our future because of the, the collective progress that we've made?
1: Yes, I think optimism is a good thing. However, I think that there is still so much work to be done to achieve social equity And one of the places to begin is to engage with and contend with our history, not just the feel good parts of history, but all of the history, colonialism, slavery, white supremacy, sexism, heterosexism, classism, all of these histories and so many others that I can't name. It's not about focusing or dwelling on what divides us, right? I think some folks say, well, that's contentious. Why do you keep focusing on the contention? It's not about that, but rather it's about engaging with it, being critical about it, and being real about the historical dynamics that have fueled and continue to fuel so much of the injustices we continue to see in our communities and the world around us. We are living in a crucial moment. And actually, I tell my classes this, right? like We are living in a crucial moment. It is an opportunity to create a better world. And I tell my classes, yours is a generation that's changing it. And I think that that's very, very visible. But as history has shown us, if we don't deal with what created the systems, if we don't contend with this history, if we don't look at what creates the systems that we live in now, we're going to continue to replicate the same oppressions. And regardless of whatever, you know, move forward we've made in trying to eradicate these injustices. If we don't dismantle and can, you know, contend with the power dynamics that produce them and dismantle these systems, what's going to happen is that our progress is going to stall because we'll just end up replicating the same, the same kinds of oppressions, the same kind of exploitation. So yeah, optimism, I'm optimistic. (laughs) But I'm also a realist in the sense of like, we can't, we can't get the, we can't get to a good place, an equitable place for everyone if we don't address the things that got us here in the first place, the good and the bad.
0: So how do you think we educate people along those lines? Or what do you think we need to do to kind of move forward? Does it start and end in education? Or, or what, what are your thoughts?
1: You know, I, I think so. I I think education is important. It's an important aspect of it. And I don't mean, I don't mean, I want to be clear here. What I mean by education is not necessarily exclusively something that you can attain in the halls of higher education. That's not, that's not what I'm saying, right? What I, I mean, education in, in its, in its broadest form, right? The opportunity to engage with people about ideas and, and talk about things and, and you know, like what I said earlier about making history accessible. Um, I think education is an important component of it. Um, but I think the other element of it is, is having the ability to actually have those tough conversations and, and do it in such a way where, where we can be really real about our history. I think sometimes what we think is that if we don't talk about the hard parts, if we don't talk about slavery and white supremacy, and we don't talk about sexism and, homophobia or transphobia and classism and all of these other injustices that exist i think we'll say well we can move forward from this let's leave that in the past but again the the problem is that if we don't if we don't learn about them if we don't engage in conversations about them and uh, as a way of dismantling them and taking away their power i don't think that we're going to move anywhere and so yeah I, you know part of it is education part of it is actually just being real about how we got where we're at, and and um, yeah, I, I think that's that's how we that's how we can <laughs> make the world a better place <laughs> and address you know societal injustice.
0: The book is Passing It Before the Roses: Race, Identity, and Land Use in Southern California from 1771 to 1890. It is a great book, and it can be found online, but also at your local bookstore, which we have some great ones in Pasadena, which you know well know of. Yvette, thank you so much for being generous with your time. I greatly appreciate it.
1: Thank you, James. I I enjoyed spending time with you. Wonderful questions. Thank you so much.
0: Again, my many thanks to Dr. Saavedra for coming on the show. If you're interested in learning more about Yvette's work, her book, Passing Before the Roses, is available wherever books are sold. But please consider supporting your local bookshop if you can. I will add links to her book, as well as a great essay she wrote entitled Pasadena, California Was Born in Indiana During the Cold, Damp Winter of 1872 in the show description and notes that are on the show's website. And thank you for listening. If you are a business owner or community leader and want to share your story, please let me know as I'd love to learn more about you and have you on the show. If you have enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing so that you don't miss an episode. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Breaker, and several other platforms. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show so that others can find it. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at Podcast.com and follow me on Instagram at crowncitypodcast. You've been listening to The Crown City Podcast, and until next time, please remember to stay safe, stay positive, And as always, see you around town.